1: turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment want more flexibility find out more about united healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during
2: inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down
0: Bye. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. How you doing, buddy?
3: I'm good. I'm I'm jazzed. I can tell. Was that like I was trying to be like I an oxymoron, feel... like saying I'm jazzed and like the most I'm I'm so jazzed. Well, that's kind um, of like
0: jazz. Jazz is like cool and mellow. And kind of I know. Like so, I'm You're, not mellow. You are excited. You're not mellow. What is going mellow. on? What is what is the good news that you have to share with me?
3: <laughs> it's it's not that big, but I am going to New York for the first time in a very long time, which I'm super excited about because now. I've been vaccinated for a couple months. My, my family is vaccinated. So, so we're doing it. We're doing it. I mean, I'm doing it, but I have to get on a plane. So,
1: so how do you feel about that? That.
3: I feel pretty good because the numbers for the the data for vaccinations, um, and the immunity you get, even with a lot of the variants is just so good. And, um, and every time they kind of revisit it, the numbers are just great. And, um, Everything I've read that says if you get like more than 50% immunity, it's like a miracle and all the vaccines are way over that. So it's just, I feel really, I don't want to be overconfident. I'm still going to, and reckless. I'm still going to wear an N95 because I have extra from work that are, you know, because we haven't, I haven't really been throwing many away.
0: Yeah. And I'll probably wear are not using new ones. We're using ones that are old that we've used before (laughs) instead of tossing them. Right. we're using them because right. they probably still confer a little bit more protection than your typical mask, even if right. they've been used for a while.
3: Yeah. I'm not going to buy a whole boatload and, and hoard up, but I have if. a bunch that I've been rotating through over the last um, year. <laughs> um, and I'm going to wear probably some eye protection and just get on the plane and hope that a lot of my mates, plane mates, um, passenger mates are vaccinated as well, but I don't care. I'll be safe. I, I'll try well- to be safe.
0: I'm glad that you bring that up, because one, I'm I'm happy you're going. I'm happy you can get to go and get back to New York. I hope you actually bring me back pizza this time, like I ask you every <laughs> time. and You never do. But we should talk about it, because the CDC came out with new guidelines relatively recently about what vaccinated people can do, and I kind of thought we should maybe touch base about that, because you do mention that they seem to be, they seem to work against these variants, except for the South African strain the B1351 strain, it does not seem to be as good as that one. And that one is in at least 20 different places here in the United States. So, there is some cause for a little bit extra caution. I think there's still a lot we don't know about it. But I think
3: isn't there also a, a P one, which is also there's some like terrible anyway. I, I well, heard about it recently, but it's B one
0: one seven, I, I think there's two B one one yeah, seven is yeah. the UK strain. Yeah. And the vaccines seem to work against them, but there are other strains where it may not. And there's just we just don't have tons of information yet. Right. The long and the short of it is the CDC's new recommendations basically say if you're vaccinated, you can like go hang out with somebody if they're vaccinated inside, not wearing masks. That makes sense, I think. Where I think it gets a little tricky is their recommendations also say now that if you're hanging out with someone who is not considered high risk for severe disease, that you can take off your mask. And not have a mask on around them. I find that's where this gets a little bit more gray and this yeah, is a little bit more maybe. questionable, right? What do you what do you think about that?
3: I think if you have a choice, you should wear a mask. I mean, for for a long time. I mean, at least another six months, if years, if not forever. Like there's no downside. I, you yeah. know, let's not be let's not be civil rights fanatics. Okay. <laughs> like right, right. it's okay to wear a mask. If you're eating and drinking, I understand but let's just be safe until we know more. That's what I think. I mean, let's just be practical. And I heard, I think NPR just give a bottom line. Like what this means is grandparents can hug their grandkids. The
0: the thing I, I find a little troubling is this caveat of if you're not at risk for severe disease, I don't think Americans really have a good grasp of what is at risk because right. you know, a lot of Americans have risk factors for severe disease, yeah. lung issues, diabetes, obesity, all, all three, and they don't necessarily think of it that way. They don't think of themselves that way. So, I mean, I think there's probably a lot, if you probably were to poll Americans and be like, do you consider yourself high risk? I bet you there's a pretty wide discrepancy between what they would say and what medical doctors would say. Yeah. So it does concern me. And I agree. There's a little downside to it. Actually, I'm, I'm so I, I was on vacation in San Diego and, you know, it's a great place and I love San Diego. And I'll tell you though, the the mask wearing scene there was not, as strong as I'd hoped it would be. And even though I'm vaccinated, I'm still wearing my mask everywhere. I'm still wearing my mask anytime I go into stores or restaurants, when I'm out in public, even if I'm not necessarily close to anyone, but I can be, if nothing else, as a sign of respect to other people, because they don't know I've had my vaccine. Well, that's the thing, right? You have to model good behavior, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. That's a problem is like trying to identify yourself as um, having been vaccinated. That will be the next mini hurdle i hope uh, that'll be that that problem we're okay with like proving right. that you're vaccinated that's a problem um, a problem we want to have um but that is the next interesting kind of co- thing that we have to navigate in the future so
0: well we'll talk more about it as time comes and if you guys have any uh, thoughts about it please share them with us as i know you will um Follow us at Twitter at the House of Pod. If you haven't already, do that. Also, if you haven't, make sure you like and subscribe to the show. If you're on iTunes, then rate us. Why don't you? Just do it. Try it. Why don't and uh, thank you to Nadine for helping us get these episodes out there. Anyone else you want to thank? Never. We have two great guests coming up. We have Ugu Iroku and Sophie Balzora, two gastroenterologists. They're going to talk to us about a brand new group that they have formed the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists. Stay tuned. Today we have two guests with us. We have Dr. Ugo Uroku, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at the Mount Sinai Hospital, and we have Dr. Sophie M. Balzora. She is a Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Thank you both so much for joining us. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us.
3: Thank you. Um, well, you, Sophie, or Dr. Balzora, you—everyone ca- should know that Sophie and I were fellows together. So it's hard for me to show her a ton of respect. No, I'm just kidding. She was a great <laughs> fellow. Um,
0: Wait, who was who was the senior fellow?
3: I was or above her. Senior. Yeah, <laughs> just one year. <clears> throat> <So> throat> I showed her the ropes. I everything she knows, really. Every, you know,
0: oh, she owes it oh, to me,
3: right? I'm Sophie, sorry. no, is that not okay?
1: I, I showed her
2: everything she knows. I was actually her GI fellow when she was a resident.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't so know she that. learned what
0: not to do from Lizzie, <laughs> and she learned <laughs> what to do from you. Okay, that's cool. You can that's say, that's true, my, yeah. my
2: that's my big claim to fame in life here. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> well, so it's hard because we try really hard on the show. This is a side note, but to call women in particular, probably especially black women, doctor. You know, we don't just want to call Sophie Sophie and call you, Ugo, Dr. Oroku. That would not be fair. So, but Sophie, I've known for, you know, 10 years now, so it's hard for me to think of her as just Dr. Balzora, but Dr. Balzora, tell us about the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists, about the group, why you formed it, why you thought it was
1: important. Okay, Um, so yes, I would say that we're very excited to introduce ABGH or the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists to you all. Um, It was definitely a labor of love to get things launched, Um, but I'd also say it was a a long time in the making. Um, What I think a lot of people actually don't know is that there was a Black GI society um, decades ago, right? Um, And it was named after the first Black American gastroenterologist, Dr. Berry. And, you know, that association doesn't exist anymore, but you know given the fact that there's been a lot that's happened over the past year, and even in the years book before that, as we all are very aware, I think some more than others, um, you know, a couple of us came together from across the country who knew each other in different circles, whether they trained together or were on papers together or what have you, and we have just been having a lot of conversations about um, you know, disparities with COVID-19 with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I mean, unfortunately, there's just a litany of examples. And you know, it just, we just came together, 11 of us came together, we started having conversations, started having Zoom calls about what can we do? Like, what can we do to specifically target black Americans um, as it relates to health inequity? Um, And, you know, our biggest focus, of course, is colorectal cancer, um, knowing that there are huge disparities there. And we said, we have to make something formal, right? We have to get things going, we have to get people motivated because everybody was kind of siloed, right? Um, and so ultimately month after month, you know, we're meeting very frequently and thinking about ways to organize and who to pull in. And, you know, we have had a lot of support, you know, asking our mentors, what's the best approach? What have you done in the past that's worked and hasn't? Um, and then, you know, ABGH was born now that it's March and it's Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. You know, it's a really, it's really a good time for us to get that exposure and work with our partners in you know, achieving this goal of health equity as it relates to black communities health.
3: So it's like community outreach, um, which sounds like kind of the priority. Is it also about trying to get more black people to participate in roles in medicine, whether it be nurses, doctors, like, and how do you guys do that? Maybe Dr. Oroku, you could speak to that. Like, is it from, do you plan to get into high schools and middle schools and encourage kids? Like, we know it has to start before, before us, right? We're already seasoned gastroenterologists. We're like hardcore. But um, how do we get the youth and the earlier generations to to participate?
1: Yeah.
2: So I, you know, it, it, and we definitely felt the same way. Um, and that kind of crystallized itself in the mission of ABGH. And so we say we exist to promote health equity in Black communities, but also to advance science and to the develop the careers of gastroenterologists, uh, hepatologists, and scientists. And you know, uh, when we look into our missions, our, our vision actually, one of the visions we have is to create a pipeline uh, where we encourage people to become gastroenterologists. Now, we currently don't have the infrastructure to get into high schools, of course, given COVID uh, beat us to it, so to speak. Uh, But that ultimately is one of the things that we're thinking about, getting into um, middle schools, high schools. Uh, For now, that pipeline uh, does exist, and we're looking to encourage it uh, in terms of developing medical students who have an interest in internal medicine and gastroenterology, and uh, those uh, who become uh, internal medicine residents, making sure that they, if they're interested in becoming gastroenterology fellows, they understand how to do it, who to work with, who to do research with, what the field entails, and so um, yeah. In a lot of ways, we we do recognize one of the big things, one of the ways you take care of Black communities, is by encouraging the creation of Black doctors. Yeah. You, you know, you're talking about these health
0: inequities. Um, and when you do that, it's hard to not talk about systemic racism, in medicine, and systemic racism. Beyond that, do you find yourselves in the position of having to explain systemic racism to your colleagues? Is that something that you guys are doing pretty frequently?
2: Yeah, you know, I would say that. Yeah, there obviously, you know, we live in a, we're a republic of sorts, and so we represent a lot of different regions and ideals and histories and cultures. And there there are people who um, find it hard to hold on to like their patriotism and their love for the country and also recognize some of the original sins that come with the country. And so there are people who just do not feel that there is institutionalized racism. They think it's just a made up term. uh, It's a triggering term. Uh, But the idea is that uh, even if a person is not racist, uh, you can still have a lot of policies in place that disproportionately affect people of different races. That's what we're saying is uh, institutionalized racism. It doesn't mean that every person there is racist or that there's a training program to become racist. It just means that there's a set of um, uh, uh, systems that uh, are historical and that are even kind of subconscious that exist that affect uh, people of color black and brown
0: i'm just i guess i'm confused because jamma recently had a podcast that said no <laughs> doctors were racist so I, I don't know what you're talking about um actually I want, I want we should talk about that podcast did either of you guys listen to it i to I'm, I'm gonna let sophie take this one
1: <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately i listened to it late at night when i was tired and it just made me that much more incensed and then i couldn't even sleep Right. <laughs> can you tell
0: our can you tell our listeners who have not familiar with what I'm talking about can you can you tell them what uh, I'm talking about here?
1: So recently there was a podcast that was um, I guess I'll say published but in uh, on social media that was circulating actually from probably about I'd say two weeks ago and then it gained traction because um, you know someone had tweeted about it and said that they were really looking forward to hearing. What um, what was said between one of the edit- one of the editors in chief of JAMA and then um, some I, I can't recall his name unfortunately but someone who has a very prominent role in the in the hospital system the public hospital system in New York City um, and um, the title the, the podcast was entitled something like physicians can't be racist and then something something that referenced structural racism and um, To listen to the, you know, when you see that heading, you would think, wow, they're really going to break down structural racism means and how, you know, it is, uh, you know, a huge threat to health equity and and the things that we can do to combat it. But instead, it really was this, um, you know, this kind of explanation that structural racism cannot exist because racism is technically illegal in this country. Discrimination is illegal and so for that reason um it's impossible for structural racism to exist
0: which doesn't really track with what we see does it, it yeah <laughs> the uh the podcast was called um, structural racism for doctors what is it and the tweet um that was uh, that got a lot of attention started with you know um doctors can't be racist doctors aren't racist so how can there be structural racism in healthcare
3: Hey, i didn't i didn't listen to it is this like philosophical like doctors yes. cannot commit illegal acts therefore they can't be racism because racism is illegal like is this like is this just like mental masturbation of like nonsense like i don't even understand a to b to c because it sounds like i it's don't very like it's
1: very
3: okay difficult. so it does it's gibberish <laughs> is what you're saying please yeah. our listeners do not listen to the podcast you know
1: this, it no longer exists for public consumption oh
0: yeah listen our listeners the listeners who listen to our show are not the same listeners who listen to JAMA. (laughs) i think there's like a pretty fine line there it was dr ed livingston he's the deputy editor for clinical reviews over there at JAMA, and then dr mitchell katz who is a president and chief executive officer of nyc health and hospitals so so they took it um, down oh yeah and they apologized i mean uh it, it didn't go over very well thankfully let me let me ask you guys this though that being said are you finding that since 2016 you are in a position now where your colleagues, your white colleagues are for the first time noticing systemic racism. And if so, is it kind of annoying that this is the first time they've noticed it? And, you know, do you find that you have, it's a bit exhausting having to always deal with that? Like you have to deal with your own like trauma dealing with it, but then you have like your friends who are just coming to realize that it exists. And then you have to sort of address that for them as well. Is that something that's happening?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and it's exhausting. Um, <laughs> it's exhausting. Sophie, for those of us who it's can't exhausting. see, Sophie
3: looks exhausted, just thinking about
1: it. <laughs> um exactly. It is mentally exhausting. It is physically taxing. It is emotionally tragic. Um, that you know you're saying something over and over again or, or trying to have people something understand something that's your lived experience, and then all of a sudden they have an epiphany and want to talk about it constantly. Um, But at the same time, right, at the same time, uh, you say, okay, I have a platform now, people are listening, this is the perfect time. So, you know, you have to work through that exhaustion um, to help accomplish what ought to be everybody's goal, right? So, um, you know, I think that the way that that Jama, uh, and I learned that it's pronounced Jama, not Jamma by this podcast, by the way. But I, I will it say Jama. it however I want to
0: say but their I, names. They've I, I lost like, all rights for me to say their name correctly.
1: I thought it was Jama. I was like, I thought this was Jama. But whatever it is, um, you know, I think the way that it was received now is probably not the way they would have been received years ago where people were very much quick to, you know, um, to uh, condemn it. So, but I, I think that the important thing, at least for me, the takeaway was that they talked about structural racism. But at the title um, made a lot of people angry that physicians can't be racist. And I think that that points to, uh, you know, what Ugo was referring to is that it's yes, of course, of course like personalized, like interpersonal racism, um, and those relationships between individuals is important. And but I think that that's very blatant. Like that's very easy to call out. There's like a basic consensus of when someone says something very bigoted or racist. But Ultimately, what we're after, and when we reference things like ABGH, we're after the bigger picture, right? Because like it's very easy to call out interpersonal racism, but structural racism, systemic racism, that's yeah. the heart of things. That's where the inequities flourish. That's why we're seeing what we're seeing with COVID-19. That's what we're seeing across the colorectal cancer, you know, continuum with disparities. Like those are the things that we need to target if we really want to advance health. Like yeah. as important as it is for people to quote unquote not be racist and all of that, like unless there's systems changes, it doesn't matter if people say I'm not racist or I'm not bigoted or what have you.
3: Right. You're right. Like on a structural level, it's um invisible, right? And yet right. It, it's on a daily basis that it's happening. And yet there are also these microaggressions, right? That I think is really hard to define. And it might be personal, but you know, and only one person can explain it. And and Dr. Rocco, do you also feel like that that you have to explain and that it's taxing and that, you know, you're already dealing with your own job and your own family. And now you're starting this group of people to organize and and be active. Do you feel it's just a toll on you to have to also then explain to your colleagues, peers, friends, family, whatever, like what, what this all means?
2: Uh, You know, I'll be a little bit contrarian and I'll say I am the kind of person who actually uh, enjoys that moment, and Sophie knows I'm one of those annoying optimists. Yeah, so that's—I'll <laughs> just call myself out. And the reason why I, I say optimist is that um, we we want to be in a society where where we're seeing a thing and other people can see it as well. And so it's, it it starts to wear on you psychologically when it's not being recognized. I find more of the torture when I'm looking around and no one's seeing it. No one, no one heard that. No one saw that happen, you know. And so when people start seeing it, although there is a I told you so aspect to it, mm-hmm. I'm glad I can talk to you about it now. And I'm glad it's out in the open because it's gaslighting otherwise. You feel like you're going crazy when you're saying a thing and everyone is saying it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So, I, no, I actually, I enjoy it. Uh, you know, I might be exhausted and tired, in which case I just won't talk about it. But I would much rather have that situation where... I'm being asked versus um, I'm being ignored uh, right. in terms of this issue personally. Right. Yeah,
3: yeah, I mean, we're really almost coming up on a year of uh, George Floyd's murder, right? So I think it's like a great time to highlight all of this stuff and and healthcare disparities in the black community is huge. And I do think we haven't mentioned on the show yet that, it, and Sophie mentioned earlier that it's colon cancer awareness uh, month. That's what March is for us, GI docs. So can you guys tie in some of the outreach either that you're doing or how important it is for black communities to do this? I mean, everyone knows about Chadwick Boseman, I hope. Um, he just won a Golden Globe and died from colon cancer at a very young age. And maybe we can even tie this outreach and getting colonoscopies done in our black community to like vaccine hesitancy and why there are these hurdles to getting health care. Um, do you guys, uh, will you speak to that and maybe what your group
1: is doing? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot, certainly. Um, we are, um, you know, kind of shackled by COVID a little bit, right? I mean, I think this is a time where we would love to be together um, and lean, lean on each other, um, but we have to do that virtually, of course. Um, I'll say, I'll put in a plug for our uh, virtual event that is community-focused um, that's happening in a couple weeks, March 23rd, um, uh, at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Uh, where You're we'll have um, thank you for saying Catholic. Eastern
3: Standard Time. It's confusing for <laughs> Kaveh and I. The real time. Yes, yes,
2: the real time,
3: maybe, right?
1: yeah. Oh, I know you miss New York. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's important to see black faces, right? Um, you know, whether they're patient advocates or colorectal cancer survivors or clinical experts, researchers. You know, I think that that is powerful. I think that that is important. And necessary um, and you know that's that's where we are with this um, you know to, it's we just can't ignore the fact that compared to all other races and ethnicities black Americans are dying you know at such higher rates of colorectal cancer um, and so it doesn't relate to just screening but we're talking about surveillance we're talking about coming back after you've had surgery or you know after you've been diagnosed and you know those all of those pieces all of those parts, are things that we need to focus on and I think that if that it's it's a matter of you know who is the trusted messenger um, and that's you know that's why I think it's so important when we talk about how we plan to help black communities it, that's why the pipeline is so important right it's all so closely tied together I think that we need to entrust you know um, uh, you know black people to send that message because I you know I'll, I'll say even very recently I had a patient come in Um, not with, not issues with colorectal cancer, but with IBD, and he, and he just was relieved slash, like, very grateful to see, he's like, I see somebody that looks like me, it's just, I feel like people just don't, either aren't listening to me, don't understand me, and I'm not saying that there will automatically be a connection that people have the same skin color, but I just, you know, I feel like I see that very often, and people are seeking that out, um, who otherwise Um, feel marginalized and that's you know that's what we're here for and so um, you know I I just think that that is so understated but so incredibly important right now.
2: Yeah, Interesting on that point you know um, one of our co-founders Ajua Anyane um, Yebo and I know I just butchered her name uh, uh, had a study where they looked at um, patients over like a decade at UFC And they found that, uh, you know, patients coming in with some symptoms that normally would get them evaluated for celiac disease or IBD, Crohn's ulcerative colitis, that uh, there were two big factors that led to uh, those patients not being worked up for those diseases like they should. One was having public insurance and the other was being Black. And if you were Black, uh, that you had a 90% less chance of being worked up for celiac disease or IBD. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I can imagine there is a frustration because uh, even as physicians, we tend to say, oh, well, they're that demographic. This doesn't really apply to them. But there are, it does apply. There are Black people who have Crohn's or Black people who have ulcerative colitis. And so it's hard to both be um, dealing with this universe of disease and symptoms and also feel marginalized even in that um, very you know, like unusual space as well.
0: You know, it's interesting when we have guests, on um, who are doctors, who are black doctors, they tell us their own personal stories of being patients and, and people not taking either their pain seriously or their bleeding seriously or some issue that they have. There's almost all of everyone we've talked to has that own personal story. And the, the question is, if that's happening to doctors, what's happening to the patients who aren't doctors, who don't have that vocabulary, who don't know how to advocate for themselves. Um, And, you know, getting back to the whole question of, you know, are doctors racist? I mean, it's silly because I'm sure you both have stories of either macro or micro aggressions that you've experienced in training. And we're not talking about like training in the 70s. We're talking about training now. Do you share
2: those stories with people?
0: Do you feel like that's an important thing to do? Is that something that you guys talk
2: about? You know, it reminds me of um, a a point in our relationship as the 11 of us from across the country where we got together and we're working on this thing. It might have been three, four months in. And somehow that topic came up on our WhatsApp group. And it was this this big, you know, cathartic let loose of events (laughs) because we had all had so many similar experiences That we just hadn't been able to discuss in a lot of different forums that we could just share and and again just see it oh it's not just me, Uh, so yeah it's happened a number of times I've had people you know I've walked in you know stethoscope and everything uh, and been told that you know you're I'm the janitor, uh, you look like the janitor and even when you say no no I'm the doctor it's like oh you still look like the janitor, janitor. (laughs) and and janitor Janitor. (laughs) exactly and janitors are lovely people and nothing uh, against janitors. (laughs) Yeah, but the janitor is not going to walk up to you and start palpating your abdomen, uh, you know, to feel for your liver, uh, and so, uh, and you know, also situations, of course, um, and I'm, sh- I know a lot of us have had these experiences where people come in and they specifically don't want to be taking care of people from a certain race. You know, this this happens as well, and so it's these ugly things. It's it's ugly, but it's happening to you, so it's. It's it's shameful too. You 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 own part of the shame, even though you shouldn't. And it's a hard it's a hard space to be in. Would well, you experience it also, or have you from people in the medical
0: profession themselves, not just patients?
1: Sure, sure. I think it's uh, I think that that for some reason is a surprise to some people, um, and that is a reflection of what that JAMA podcast, you know, was partly about too. It's like I mean, physicians are are, are human right? They're, yeah. I mean, they up in the same white supremacist society that, that everyone else in America has. Why, why would they be immune to it? Um, I think we all need to own up to that. And, um, yeah, whether it's faculty or your peers, or, I mean, it's all over. Um, it is, you know, it is, uh, insidious, but, um, you know, there, I think that there are different ways to deal with that and there's, you know, published literature about how to do it. But, you know, when it when you actually have to execute that plan, it can become very difficult um, because no matter how many times you've experienced it, it still gives you pause. You still kind of are in shock a little bit. Um, so just as you start to get comfortable, one of those things reminds you of where you are and <laughs> how people see you. Um, so, I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, and just think about Dr. Susan Moore. I mean... She was a doctor. She was trying to tell people what was happening. She could use the medical jargon. She could speak their language. Yeah. Obviously, didn't matter. I mean, think about Serena Williams. I mean, without a doubt, best athlete in the world, right? Very well educated, obviously, very articulate, can tell people what's happening, knows about her medical history, has oodles and oodles of money, still can convince her doctors about what was happening. So, yeah. I mean, well, it's-, it's just... It's
3: funny because if you think like you there's surveys for doctors, like do you think that you'd be influenced by a free lunch or a free pen or a free trip? And doctors mm-hmm. like, no, no, you know, we all know that because I don't think a lot of us see a lot of drug reps anymore. Although I actually don't know in my, in my world, there's none. Um, and if you had asked, if you were to ask doctors to take a survey and we should, do you feel like you're racist or do you feel like that race imparts, you know, part of your decision-making or whatever, I'm sure the same kind of thing would be true. Like you don't see, you don't like what we said earlier, you don't see institutional racism. You don't see the infrastructure that's around you that, you know, favors one group of over another insurance, you know, it's like poverty, you know, you don't, you don't feel that stuff on a day to day when you're just trying to get through your busy day, you know?
2: But I also feel, you know, on that point, it it doesn't have to be, can I identify myself as a racist? That's always going to be a, a, a hard and maybe no, the wrong question right. to ask, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I think it's, it's a question of empathy. I think as providers, our job is to be empathetic, to see the world through our patient eyes, to understand that the jargon we're using doesn't connect to them, that the tests we're sending them for to look to see if there is a look in their eye where once they leave the office, they're not going to go for that colonoscopy thing. Uh, to mm-hmm. understand maybe that you know maybe if we set off a list of tests they need to do to understand they might be thinking of the costs associated with some of these things. and so we have to be empathetic and so whether it's on um, you know uh, um, metrics or, or like in in um, uh, on issues of race or or just economic status or or gender, we have to kind of, be empathetic towards our patient. That might be the the better way to look at it, um, as opposed to asking yourself, am I racist? And I think when you're trying to do your best uh, and you recognize that you are looking at a person from your vantage point, but that there's some work to be done towards understanding their viewpoint, once you do that, you start to undo a lot of the issues that racism comes with, I think. Oh,
0: that's a great, it's a great way to close out the episode. I think that's about as optimistic as we're going to get on this show. I like that. Um, <laughs> can you- form. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's good. So um, can you guys give us your plugs? Tell us where people can find you and how they can, if they want to become involved with ABGH, how they can.
1: Yes. Well, I'll say that the mastermind behind everything tech and you know people who know people, it, it is Ugo Roku, without a doubt. Um, but I'll put in the plug for the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists. You can find us online um, at uh, blackingastro.org, blackingastro.org. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, at blackingastro. And Facebook, we have a group, um, and, uh, you know, we're we are out there. Look at our hashtag is Black and Gastro as well. And um, we are really looking forward to, um, you know, to connecting with you all.
2: Yeah. We're a few days away from uh, setting up our donations page, but uh, on the website, you can uh, currently go and get yourself some ABGH swag yes. and uh, colorectal cancer blue or our traditional uh, black and white uh, uh, t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, et cetera. I was promised a
0: shirt, by the way, just so you guys know.
2: I don't I know didn't if you involved that. with that, but I was promised a shirt.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming on. Please come back again sometime. Preferably when we can do it in person. You guys can come out to San yes, Francisco I give a and hang hug. out. Um, What's that?
1: I want to give Lizzie a big hug. Yeah, you do. Why? <laughs> You've met her. Lives I don't like
0: understand. A half a mile
3: away. Yeah. Right.
0: Anyways, thank you guys so much. Thank All you
1: right, for having us.
3: I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: You're like at a level nine. I'm going to need you to it down to like a level seven.
2: This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.